Well, thank you for being here this morning. And um, as you know, we've started a series, a brief series, on shepherding for the glory of God. And I want to thank Adam last week uh, for beginning that series, introducing these topics and these ideas to us. Um, and the topic of the, of the sermon this morning is uh, knowing the sheep. Knowing the sheep. And we'll be in John chapter 10 this morning, uh, starting in verse 22 through verse 30. John chapter 10, verses 22 through 30. Our purpose of this series is to uh, highlight and focus the role of local shepherds in shepherding the congregation for the glory of God. It is our desire to, uh, to do all that Christ has called us as elders to, to do as shepherds, and also to exhort you um, as the sheep of God's fold in how to receive the shepherding from the shepherds. Now, we are, we are under shepherds, under the headship and the authority of the Lord Jesus, and we come um, very humbly and bearing the weight and the responsibility that the Lord Jesus has laid upon us. And so we want to look to the Word of God as, as a church and see what it is that God has called us to do. And it all is undergirded and founded in our relationship with the Lord Jesus. We don't uh, shepherd in ways that we think are best. We shepherd in the ways that Christ uh, thinks is best and has revealed um, for the purpose of the church. And so this morning, as we look um, at this passage in John chapter 10, we want to look at what it means for Jesus to know his sheep. What does it mean for Jesus to know his sheep? And thus, how does that apply to us um, as elders who shepherd you and are called to know the sheep in this local assembly? And as well, how does it apply to you who should seek to be known by these local believers or these local leaders in your church? Um, it is upon the foundation of God's eternal work of grace in individual lives that God has redeemed a people by his son, the great shepherd of the sheep. And he has placed them in the fellowship of local churches led by under-shepherds, tasked with knowing the sheep as the Lord knows who are his. So would you read with me in John chapter 10, verse 22 through 30. It says, At this time, at the time of the Feast of Dedication... Uh, at the time the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem, it was winter. And Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. And so the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, if you continue to read through this chapter, you will see that this enrages these Jews. And these words of Jesus are so blasphemous to their ears that they pick up stones again to try to kill him. And Jesus uh, speaks uh, with clarity and with carefulness as he uh, answers the questions and he speaks to their hearts in ways that they need to hear, not necessarily what they want to hear. And our focus today um, is going to be a little unique as we look at this passage because what I want to do is I want to walk backwards through this passage. Normally, I'm going to follow the flow of the text, but for today's sake, if you would give me a a little bit of of leniency this morning, I want to go backwards in the text. And I want to go backwards because I feel like this passage this morning, um, it really builds upon the, the final sentences of Jesus in verses 29 and 30, which he basically equates himself as the eternal Son of God, being one with the Father. And so, to look at this backward is almost like looking at it on a chronological scope or timeline, starting in eternity and working our way to the life of Christ and what he does in the plan of redemption. So, if you, if you don't understand anything that I just said, you'll probably figure it out as we move along. Jesus, uh, for sake of context, um, is uh, kind of beginning to conclude his ministry in the, in the account of, of the Gospel of John. He's there in Jerusalem at what's called the Feast of Dedication. Um, if you have Jewish friends or you know about Jewish culture today, you would know this as what is called Hanukkah. Hanukkah was a celebration of the rededication of the temple. Uh, In that intertestamental period between you flipping from the Old Testament to the New Testament and not realizing that chronologically there are 400 years that are not described, that we don't really necessarily understand within the the biblical context, we have to go outside and look at uh, extra-biblical history to see what was going on with the Jews from the end of the Old Testament in Malachi to the beginning of the New Testament in Matthew. And in that time, the Jews actually in, in, in uh, 160, uh, 167 B.C., I think it was, they lost control and uh, rule of the, of the temple in Jerusalem. The Romans came and they, they sacked it and they took control of it and they desolated and desecrated the temple. They, they went in and they set up altars uh, to pagan gods in the temple, the Holy of Holies. It was what many Jews call the, 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 the desolation or the, the, the desecration of the temple. And it wasn't until three years later during the Maccabean re, uh, revolt that they regained control of the temple. They actually defeated in this small battle the Romans and they gained control of that temple once again. And it was that rededication of the temple that they, at Christmas time, light the menorah which is also this Feast of Dedication is also called the Feast of Lights, reminding themselves of their victory and rededication of the temple of God. 
So this was a, a festival that uh, the Old Testament saints had nothing to do with. This is something that happened in the intertestamental period and on into Jewish life even today. And so Jesus is there during this festival and the Jews are surrounding him seeking to know from him, listen, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? That's their question. They seem to be uh, agitated. It seems that they are gathering around Jesus, not in a very calm way, but in a hostile way. They want to know the truth as if Jesus has not already given them plenty of evidence that he is truly the Messiah, the Son of God. Now remember, every word has meaning. Okay? So if you call me a southerner, I need to know what you mean by that. Does that mean I am a bigot? Or does that mean I like sweet tea? Every, every word has meaning. And so when they use the word Messiah... They're not saying, hey, are you the one who will spiritually come and restore us back to the Father by giving your life on the cross for the forgiveness of sins? No, they don't mean that. They mean, are you the political leader who will come and, 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 and restore us back to our prominence as a nation who will overthrow our oppressors? Will you be the one who will lead us to a physical victory? And of course, Jesus did not come for those things. And so Jesus, in, a, in the way that he always answers in the wisdom and knowledge of God, he gives the answer that they need, not the answer that they want. He really, in essence, explains to them why they don't understand that he has clearly given evidence that he is the Messiah. So I want to look at these in three different stages. Number one, he explains the eternal gift of the Father to the Son. In verse 29, he says, My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Now, since we're going backwards, we have to clarify. He says, my Father who has given them to me, the Father gives something to the Son. What is that thing or that uh, understanding of them in this passage? What does the Father give to the Son? So if we go backwards, we see it is his sheep. He, Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice. My sheep, I know them, and they, father, uh, they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no, will, no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. So them is the Father gives the Son this sheepfold. Or in other words, we could say the Father gives the Son as a gift his people. Now that's hard for us to think about because we are stepping outside of all human existence and history. Okay? We are trying to take a finite mind and comprehend what went on before time began. 
in the eternity past, as we try to describe it with our, our small little brains, we try to say, how is it even possible that God has always existed? We even call God the one who is, and, or the one who was, and is, and is to come. And as A.W. Tozer says, those are human time words that help our brains understand the eternity Tozer says, time marks the beginning of created existence. And because God never began to exist, it can have no application to him. Began is a time word. And it can have no personal meaning for the high and lofty one that has inhabited eternity. Because God lives in an everlasting now, he has no past, no future. So when time words occur in the scriptures, they refer to our time, not his time. So here we have this, in the the eternal state of God, God is one substance and yet three persons existing for all eternity. And in that time before time, as we say, it was decreed for the supreme glory of God that the Father would send the Son and that the Son submitting to the Father would come into the world as the Redeemer and as the Savior of a particular people. That He would lovingly sacrifice Himself upon the cross that he would redeem them, that even if they physically die, that they, he would resurrect them, he's, as he says, on the last day, and they will dwell with him for all eternity in his kingdom. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is speaking to these Jews on this winter day in Jerusalem, and he's answering his question, By saying, you don't understand these concepts. But let me explain to you that there has been an eternal gift given from the Father to the Son and that that eternal gift is His people which we today call the church. Has given is a perfect tense verb which teaches us that something in the past has happened with ramifications and continual uh, action in the present. A past gift was given to the Son, and that gift was His people. Not all people through all time, not 12 people and the disciples, or the hundreds of people that were referenced as the disciples, but a special people, which we now call the church who have been redeemed by the blood of Christ, bought back from the slave market of sin, which we were once shackled to. Jesus references this again in John 17. As he's praying in the high priestly prayer, he says to the Father, he's praying, I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of this world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. So these people, God's church, the bride of Christ, the sheep of God's fold, encompass these following biblical elements. Number one, 
The Bible teaches us that God's church, the bride of Christ, the sheep of God's fold, have been chosen from eternity past. Ephesians 1 says that even, in verse 3, even as he chose us in him, when? Before the foundation of the world. A reference to an eternal choosing from eternity past. Not a choosing of the church in Ephesus, not a choosing of the twelve disciples, a choosing of God's people. Not only are they chosen from eternity past, they are chosen from all the peoples over the earth. Revelation 7-9, After that I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every tribe, from, all, um, from, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The church manifested in, in the end times being those that worship, looking all the same, dressed in all the same white robes, doing all the same thing, worshiping and praising the Lord Jesus, and yet coming from all places all over the earth. Chosen from eternity past. Chosen from all peoples over the earth. Chosen by no condition of their own. John 1, 12 and 13. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Meaning, you were not born into the family of God. You were not brought into the family of God because you were, your bloodline said so. You're of the bloodline of Adam. And that, that bloodline of Adam is condemnation. You must be redeemed. You must be saved and, and rescued. You were not born of the will of your flesh. You do not desire the things of God. You have no spiritual aspects or elements within your person that you seek after God. Romans tells us no one is good, not one. No one seeks after God. No one understands. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can understand it? So we're not born of blood nor of the will of the flesh or the will of man, but we are born of God by His grace and for His glory. And so we are chosen as a gift from the Father to the Son, as I said. And last, we are chosen for God's glory. All mine are yours, Jesus says, 7, John seventeen ten. All mine are yours and yours are mine and I am glorified in them. We stand here today completely, our minds are blown that, that God would save us. If we look at the scriptures correctly and we look at these doctrines of grace truthfully, they humble us and we say, why? Why? Not why not, why not me? But instead we ask, why me? Why me, Lord? The, an the answer humbles us. Because of God's plan of redemption, it's, it's not that, that, that we would be glorifying ourselves, but that instead Jesus says, I am glorified in them. Jesus is glorified when the work of Christ in, in our lives, the, 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 
the sealing and the, the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, the, the transformation that occurs in us is so amazing that people look at us and they glorify Christ for the work that He has done. Now I know that this is a difficult doctrine to wrap our minds around. I understand the tension that we see and the confusion at times by stereotypes and different things that come up from these doctrines that people want to inject into the Word of God that don't exist. We struggle at times to understand how that God has chosen a people to believe upon the Lord Jesus. If you're a follower this morning, you probably are thinking back in your mind and you remember this time or period of time when you began to follow Jesus. Your awareness of sin became heavy. Your understanding of grace and love toward God became clear. And by faith you responded in truth to the gospel and you believed. And you look at those realities and you think, this doesn't fit at all with the the truth of the doctrines of election and God's grace. But what you are unaware of because of your finite mind with your lack of understanding of eternity. And yet what the scripture clearly reveals to us is that at the time of your believing and your trusting in Christ, you were transformed by his grace. You were given faith to believe. Your mind was opened. The blinders were removed so that you could see your weightiness of sin and depravity of sin and the mercy and grace that God has extended to you. And yet there's still objections. There's still questions. James Boyce in his commentary on John says about these objections. He says, some say, quote, but surely God called them, these, these people who are saved, because he foresaw that they would believe. James Boy says, but it doesn't say that. Others say, well, he chose them because he knew in advance that they would merit salvation. It doesn't say that either. What it does say is that the grace that is found and the Lord Jesus, on one hand, is, his God, is God's electing grace, whereby he chooses some for salvation entirely apart from any merit on their own part, which, of course, they do not have. And on the other hand, in Christ's particular atonement, by which he bore the penalty for the sins of his people. So not only is the eternal gift initiated by the Father to the Son, but as Jesus reminds us in John chapter 10, that it is secured in Him for all eternity. The Father chooses a people who He does not just rescue from the pangs of sin and death, but He eternally sets them apart, fully saves them, and powerfully secures them in this life and for all eternity. This is the doctrine of the security of all God's people who are not only secured in Christ, but who will also persevere until the end of this earthly life through all of its storms. They are called the conquerors of Revelation chapter 3. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. 
And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. These conquerors are not people who tried really hard and made it to heaven. These people are in heaven and have conquered because of the security that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ provides us and empowers us through this life. And so you ask, what in the world does this have to do with shepherding the church? Well, if it, was the, if it was the eternal plan of God for every believer to not only be gifted to the Son, to be redeemed by His grace, but it was also the gift of the Father and the Son to this local assembly. That you have been brought into the universal family of God And yet, by God's providence, you have been brought to this local assembly, and thus you are a gift from God to this church. By His providence, He draws and guides our lives. Acts 17 says that, that He has determined allotted periods and boundaries for our dwelling place. That we should seek God and, and perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him. And so your landing at redemption is not a mere accident or chance, regardless of its appearance from the lens of earthly perspective. God has led you here for a period of time to have fellowship with these brothers and sisters, to serve this community, and to be led by these brothers whom you call your elders. These are the affairs of heaven manifested on earth. And because of them, we are grateful and we worship God who has included us in his work. Folks, if you are in Christ, you are a sheep belonging to the shepherd for all eternity. And by his good pleasure and by his grace, he has not left you alone to be a sheep as an individual in this world full of wolves. He has put you in a place where you can worship and grow, and lean upon and depend upon, ultimately the great shepherd, and below that your under-shepherds, and your brothers and sisters in Christ. 1 Peter chapter 5 reminds us, as elders, that we are to shepherd the flock of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not compulsion, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you. Not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge. I love that because in verse 3, not domineering over those in your charge means not domineering over those you have inherited. God has brought you here. And as we shepherd We shepherd you because we look at you and we know that God, by His grace in eternity past, has determined to lavish His gracious love upon you and that you belong to the family of God and you deserve to grow in Christ and you deserve to be edified by brothers and sisters and be led by elders and bring glory to Christ ultimately in your participation and membership of this local body. 
So it's an eternal gift. There's also, number two, eternal love. Jesus says, if we step back now to verse 27 and 28, my sheep hear my voice, I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Continuing in our backwards look of this passage, we're now stepping out of eternity into time itself. Jesus, the eternal Son of God, has now condescended into the world taking the form of man in order to purchase his people from their slavery of sin. He comes to, the res- to be the rescuer, to be the redeemer, to be their savior. And I love this, how it's illustrated in the book of Hosea in the Old Testament. Hosea is called by God to go and, and marry Gomer, and Gomer is a prostitute, and, and he, he takes her and, and he, he rescues her from this life of immorality and sin, and, and, and God, uh, he, he continues to, to plead and, and command uh, Hosea to not only um, marry Gomer, but to continue to pursue her and love her, even through her continual acts of rebellion and prostitution and immorality. And there's a scene where Hosea has to go and he's now married to this woman and they have children and he has to go and pursue her and spend all that he has to buy her back from the slave markets where she was giving of herself to other men. And he's using Hosea as this this tragic and beautiful example of God's pursuit of his people in the midst of their own idolatry and prostitution of sin. That is us. And that the Lord Jesus Christ, the eternal Son of God, worshipped for all eternity by the angels, steps out of heaven, condescends to the earth, puts on human flesh, and gives himself as a sacrifice for his people. The Jews are standing around Jesus and they're saying, tell us plainly, tell us plainly, are you the Messiah? And Jesus is basically saying, you don't understand these things because you're not my sheep. My sheep hear my voice. That's why I showed that video. I love that, that just that visible image of what happens when the, the sheep all standing around, doing their own thing, eating their grass, and eating their grass, and all of a sudden, what do they do? They hear the voice of the shepherd. Nobody else could call them. Everybody else felt like idiots (laughs) saying the words that would call these sheep. And yet when the shepherd spoke, their heads popped up and he spoke some more and they immediately came to him. You know why? Because he's their provider. (laughs) He's the one that feeds them every day. He's the one that cares for them. And so they know his sheep. They know his voice as as the sheep. And they respond Brothers and sisters, you are here today because of the eternal love of God that was cast upon you. You understand the voice of God that's revealed in His Word because God has allowed you to hear. Just as He physically gave you hearing on the day that you were born, He physically opened your ears so you could hear the gospel and repent and turn from your sins. The gospel is ludicrous to people with deaf ears to the gospel. They're just words. It's 
Some people say they're words of bigotry. They're biased words. They're old and archaic words that don't have relevance today. But yet when we hear the words, they are life to us. And there is no, there is no ounce of your physical human existence that would ever understand that if the holy God of this universe did not interact and intercede in your life and make you and give you the ability to believe. There's no way. You might as well be hearing a completely foreign language and having no understanding of what's being said. Now, to be fair, many people, many opponents of this truth of God's electing grace may respond back as this is a notion of God being unfair. They might say, these people have no chance, no opportunity to be saved. These opponents of God's grace, imagine that in, their, in, their, in our brains, these people all over the world are begging on the mountaintops for God to save them. That they're begging, and that God turns his cold, heartless back to them. This is untrue and, and a heretical picture of God. First of all, God is perfect and just in his being, in every way. It is impossible for him to rule unfairly. He is equally good, righteous, holy, and just. And none of these attributes of God can be out of balance. None of them can be biased. They do not deteriorate. They have no malady in themselves. God is not taking bribes under the table. Instead, he is worthy to be trusted because he is our creator and because he has shown himself faithful not only by his words, which we should immediately believe, but he has also shown himself faithful in his actions throughout all of history. So to declare that God is unfair is to assume that our human understanding of fairness is the standard. Secondly, God is a merciful and gracious God. And he has given good gifts to his greatest enemies. God is obligated to save no persons. He is not obligated to save anyone. But he chooses to save us, not because he needs our human worship, because he has determined in eternity past to set his love, to demonstrate his love in the person of Jesus Christ for his supreme glory. Again, Acts chapter 17, the God who made the world and everything in it, being, of, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temple made by man, nor is he served by humans, human hands as though he needed anything 
Since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. Folks, in comparison with those who do not believe, God's sheep believe because God chose to rescue them and call them. And as those that want to cry, that is unfair. Let's put it to another, uh, uh, another illustration. Husbands, is it unfair that you asked your bride to marry you, devoted yourself and your soul affections and your intimacies and your life to her only? Is it unfair that you choose to love one woman out of all the women in the world? Well, some people would say that is unfair. But it's not a true picture of marriage. Wives, is it unfair that you likewise committed to unite with your husband above all men, showing special love and mercy and devotion to him? Of course not. Nor is it unfair to God would show his love to his people to do whatever pleases him for his glory. And so Jesus says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And he's not saying, I am acquainted with my sheep. He's not saying, I understand their personalities. He's, saying, he's not saying, I am confident in their existence as human beings. He's speaking of a relational love, a knowing that is mirrored imperfectly in the marriage relationship. Since none of us grew up as shepherds, at least some of us understand the marriage relationship. A husband knows his wife more deeply and intimately than any other woman. A shepherd knows his sheep because he has cared for them since birth, and he will care for them until death. So it's an intimate knowledge. It's an intimate relational connection between us and God. Jesus knows his sheep because they have always been his sheep and they always will be his sheep. And so we step into this realm of application and we say, again, how does this connect to shepherding? Well, the elders, we have been really challenged recently to consider how our role in shepherding the church, the responsibility that God has entrusted to us. And in that responsibility comes this special attention that we give to the entry door of this local assembly. Not the physical entry door. We have many, you know but the spiritual door. In other words, we, we don't let everybody in. Our job as, as shepherds of this flock is we have to examine the sheep to see if they are sheep. This is the responsibility that God has given us. This is the responsibility that that Jesus lays before Peter in Matthew chapter 16. He says, I tell you, you are Peter on this rock. I will build my church and the gate of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. We don't believe that this, this 
phrase from the Lord Jesus means that Peter and all his descendants from this point, from that point forward, are the leadership of the church. And unless you have some lineage or descendancy of of Peter, then you can't lead. We don't believe that like the Roman Catholic Church. We believe that, that Peter has been called by God to lead the church, not only as an apostle, but as an elder, and that the church itself is responsible for the keys of the kingdom manifested on earth. Keys represent entry and exit and authority. And so we as elders, we believe that is our, our responsibility to be the chief administrators of the gospel of the kingdom. So, so to say it frankly, our job is to examine who are the sheep that belong to Christ. That's our responsibility. And to be honest with you, we could see in churches all over the world that the door is wide and there's not much examination or evaluation. He's like, come on in, fill the pews. Come on in, let's, let's have church together. And not long after that, these people who have not been examined become leaders. Come be a leader in the church. Hey, if you feel led, come preach the gospel. And what happens? The gospel's not preached. Maybe a prosperity false gospel is preached or a presupposed, biased truth is trying to be conveyed, one that that builds up power and authority and, and dominion. And so if Jesus has redeemed his people, and he is sending them and commanding them to, to be a part of the church, and, and then it's our job as elders to be responsible for who we who we meet and and we investigate and examine them so that we can see if there is fruit in their life and we understand this weighty responsibility. We don't walk around with arrogance and, 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 and haughtiness and go, this is our responsibility. We administer the gospel, the, the word of God, the, the, the word of the kingdom is what we administer. These, these uh, regulations of admission are not ones we made up. They're, what, they're in God's Word. Everything that we try to do is, is structured and focused on God's Word. So we're not making regulations and having hoops that you have to jump through because we think they're best. We're drawing those things from the Scriptures. So that Christ guides us and directs us. So it's our job then to, on a large level, on a, on a, on a, as, as one book or reading calls it, a macro level, we are to know the sheep in such a way that we understand that you know the shepherd. But then on, as the book says, a micro level, our job is also to like personally know you. How you doing? Going to Danvers for lunch? Great. That's not knowing you. <laughs> That's not understanding your, your failures and your weaknesses and your struggles and how you're, 
how your relationship with your parents are, or your brothers and sisters, or what is it that, that you desire most uh, in, in your life in a way of how do you want to serve the Lord Jesus, and, and what are the giftings of the Spirit that you've been given, and we want to know you. We want to pursue your greatest spiritual good. And that requires us knowing and pointing you to your greatest spiritual good, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Pointing you to his word. We want to love you responsibly, unconditionally, and continually out of a knowledge that Christ has brought you, or excuse me, has bought you by his blood and has now personally entrusted you to us as under-shepherds. And we also want to know the areas of your life where you are gifted to serve so that we can equip you to carry out the mission that God has called you personally to participate in. And so in a like manner... I would say that you being known by the local shepherds of this church, the elders, would mean one that you would submit to Christ in such a way that you submit to the elders. Part of your submission is allowing them into your life. I understand you may have been a part of a church before where the elder never came to your house. They never asked you really personal questions, asked you to confess your sins one to another. But we believe that it's the biblical way and the best way to responsibly care for your souls. I can't stand before the Lord Jesus one day as a pastor and go, you know, I didn't really know the people in my, in my care because they had been in these previous churches that they didn't really experience those things and I just didn't really want to press it. Christ has placed us as ministers of the word of God for your individual needs. And your submission to them allows us to know you on a deep personal level so that we can administer the gospel of the kingdom to you. I also think it entails trusting. You know, trust in church leadership is sometimes forfeited when a a leader proves himself untrustworthy. But the problem comes when we're so victimized by that that we don't want to trust any church leader for the rest of our life. Or I heard about that church down the road. I bet my pastor's a little shady too. Well, hey, we as a church, or as church leaders, we want to make ourselves transparent. Because there are times that, that evil creeps into church leadership and it needs to be exposed. But we ask you and we plead with you, please don't distrust us because you've distrusted another church leader. If you evaluate our life and and you investigate us as we investigate you, investigate us as, as men who have been called, who show a 1 Timothy and a Titus evidence that we have been called to do these things. And if you find some evidence in our life where we don't meet the requirements, the Bible says take two or three witnesses with you, approach an elder, and confront him on those things. But the purpose is for us to know the sheep as Christ knows his sheep. 
Last thing, stepping back even further to verses 24 and 25 and 26. The Jews gathered around him and said, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe. Why? Because you are not among my sheep. My former pastor once said, The hardest doctrine to grasp is not the doctrine of election which teaches that God chooses some for salvation. The hardest doctrine to grasp is the doctrine of reprobation. That God does not save all, but instead punishes the guilty. Reprobation is defined by Wayne Grudem as the sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and therefore manifest his judgment. And so that's really the pushback that we should have. If we're going to put God on, a, on, a, on, the, on the, the judgment seat, if you're willing to do that, then you should really ask God the question, God, why don't you save all people? But I guarantee you the answer is this. No one deserves to be saved. No one deserves His grace. We are all rebels of heart. In and of ourselves, we would never pursue Christ. We would never want Him. We don't want to worship Him. We want to worship ourselves. We love the idols of our heart. God is not unfair. We are unfair. And so God punishes the guilty. And yet in this amazing, beautiful picture, He takes or he commissions his son to go into the world. And as, an, as the innocent, eternal son of God, bear the weight of sin and guilt for his people, to suffer the death of a criminal on the cross, to bear the wrath of God upon the sins of his people, to bear the shame, the separation... And to do all that, why? Because we deserve it? No. But before His glory. And let's be clear that when our sovereign God punishes sin, He should be glorified. It means that He is just And he is fair, and that is not something that we even can comprehend in a sinful world. His justice saturates this world now, and ultimately in eternity. And even in his justice, we see the beauty of his grace shine through. One Christian rapper, I love the way he says it, that the hero dies for the enemies. So the simple truth for the Jews and for us today is that many at the end of their life will not, belong, uh, will not believe because they reject Christ. They are guilty in their sin. They choose to rebel and live in rebellion against Him. 
their guiltiness is not upon God our creator. We cannot blame him for their rebellion. We cannot blame him for their sin. And we trust in his sovereign plan to punish the guilty. And as a church, as leaders, we don't understand or recognize on a, on a physical level who are believers, who are the elect of God. We, we don't understand those things. We try to give evidence and, and examine evidence, but we don't go out into the world and, and look at people and go, well, I'm going to go share the gospel with that guy because he shows evidence. We just go share the gospel. We spread the gospel to all people, and we know that at the end of life, the people that have come to Christ are his elect. That's how we do it. Which means that people that believe in the doctrines of grace, we're not fatalists. We don't just say, throw our hands up in the air and say, well, whoever's going to be saved is going to be saved. Because that would be disobedient to Scripture. We call people to faith in Christ. We say, repent and believe. And we know that those who repent and believe do so by the power of God alone. And so as elders, we protect God's flock from those who do not belong. Church, we have church. We worship I preach for an hour, we cannot expect unbelievers to enjoy that. We cannot believe that we open the doors of this church and we invite lost people in there and we say, come on in and sing songs of worship that have no meaning to you and listen to words that have no meaning to you. And, and be entertained and, and, and then leave going, man, I've got to have more of that. Folks, until the gospel enlightens their lives and faith, they, by faith they come to Christ, they will never understand what we're singing. They will never understand why the spiritual community is of the utmost importance in our individual lives. And so our job is not to open the doors and go, come on in, we'll entertain you, we'll do these things that draw you in. We go out as the church. And we share the gospel with all people. And we trust that God in His sovereignty and by His grace will draw believers to Himself. And so we go. And it's our job as leaders to preach that. It's our job as leaders to demonstrate that. To exhort you to do those things. Because we're first doing them. So that we can all go together and proclaim the gospel of the kingdom until the Lord Jesus comes. So the invitation and the the opportunity to commit to the Lord Jesus is this. Do you understand the weight of your sin? The depth of the separation between you and God? Do you understand that God sent his son into the world to save his enemies from death and his wrath? The invitation is extended for you to believe that Jesus Christ, the the sinless son of God, came into the world, lived a perfect life, died upon the cross, bore the weight of sin for his people, 
literally died and was buried in the grave and then rose victoriously to provide forgiveness, to provide uh, reconciliation for you. Someone who is unworthy of any of those things. And so the, com- the commitment is to believe in him. Believe upon the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. 